Hi, I'm Ted Zoller, and you're tuned into On the Heels of Innovation, a podcast powered by the Entrepreneur's Genome Project at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. How is it that some people are successful in pushing their ideas further and faster than the rest of the world? What characteristics do they share? Which skills did they work to hone? And what lessons have they uncovered through each step forward and back that can inspire you to accelerate your own ideas for a business or venture? This podcast will explore the perspectives, insights, and journeys of innovators and entrepreneurs who combine creative thinking and perseverance to go beyond the expected. On the Heels of Innovation is powered by the Entrepreneur's Genome Project, which is a research initiative that I lead with my students in the Entrepreneur's Lab class at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, revealing the DNA that makes up successful entrepreneurs. Well, welcome to On the Heels of Innovation, and we're here today with a great friend of mine, Rebecca White, who is uh, the Walter Chair of Entrepreneurship at the University of Tampa, the director of the center there. And uh, we're very fortunate this year that she is our uh, Cohane Visiting Professor, both at UNC and at Duke, teaching us what she knows about entrepreneurship education. Rebecca is a national leader in entrepreneurship, is probably the foremost leader in entrepreneurship education. I would argue on the planet, uh, and certainly I've learned a great deal from your work, Rebecca, and we're just thrilled to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Ted. It's an honor to be here and an honor to be the Cohane Visiting Professor this year. So I want to unpack a little bit about this thing about entrepreneurship education. You know, there are a number of people who have always said to me, can you really teach entrepreneurship? And you said, I would guess, of course we can teach entrepreneurship, but um, you know, an entrepreneur needs to be literate. And that comes from some of your research. Can you give me a sense of what that means? Yeah, a, a number of years ago, some colleagues and I started talking about what should an entrepreneurship graduate know? And we realized that in our discipline, we didn't even have all the, we didn't have a, a vocabulary that was common. And there's even been research that's shown that. So we started to ask ourselves the question, what should it, what would a literate, entrepreneurship student know how to do, say, um, you know, what are the knowledge, skills, and behaviors that they should have? So tell us some, how would you answer that question if someone were to challenge you? Uh, look, I'm skeptical. I'm not sure you can teach entrepreneurship. What would you say? I'd say it's like any other field. Just because you have a degree in dentistry, for example, doesn't mean you're going to be a fabulous dentist. It's the same thing in entrepreneurship. But as an entrepreneur, we can take the blindfold off. So, you know, a, a really good story I once heard is if I gave you, if I was going to offer you a million dollars to cross the busiest highway in, in uh, Raleigh, that might be what, Interstate 40? Mm -hmm. So if I was going to blindfold you and offer you a million dollars to cross that <laughs> road at five o'clock, would you do it? Uh, how much? A <laughs> million dollars. Oh, I don't know. I'd have to think that one through. Okay, so with the blindfold, probably be kind of scary, but if I took the blindfold off, you might try it. Oh, I would definitely do it for a so million dollars. So there you go. So a lot of entrepreneurs say, man, I wish I'd been had access to this because we could have helped them avoid some of the pain in the process. No question. In fact, a lot of people will say that entrepreneurship is learned by the mistakes you make Absolutely. and the failures you endure. Absolutely. That's how, a big part of it. How do you bake that into the way you teach uh, your students? Oh, that's, that's really great. You know, we, we do that in a lot of ways. Obviously, one of the simplest ways is stories, through storytelling. 
So they hear stories, our stories as educators, those of us who've been entrepreneurs, people that we bring into the class, but we also put them in experiences where they can actually um, have some exposure to failure and then uh, help them work through that. We talk about that as experiential education. Right. But many of these students have never started a company. They've never been in a business. How do you give them the factors that they feel like they're actually part of the problem or they're, they're in, immersed in the problem? How do you simulate that in the classroom environment? That's a, that's a really get, great question. So you brought up experiential education. And there is a whole field of study that looks at the science of learning and the science of teaching. And there are some theories in the space that we call situated cognition. And it's basically an argument that there is an applied kind of knowledge that's necessary in many disciplines. It's true in medicine. People do residencies. It's true in architecture. So it's true in entrepreneurship as well. We try to put students into a situation that would, would be similar to practicing and uh, give them some opportunity to learn through that. That's I always hear entrepreneurs call, call it um, doing reps, doing yeah. repetitions, and it's somewhat akin to a research doctor and a clinical doctor. Yes. You know, um, we're actually putting uh, people in the practice. Um, and it occurs to me, uh, I had the opportunity to visit uh, your center, uh, Tampa, and uh, it is one of the most imaginative spaces, uh, pound for pound, that I've seen on this planet. Tell us a little bit about how um, situational uh, cognition factored into your design for that space. Well, interestingly, it was the model that we used to design the space. And I was very fortunate to work with a very creative architect. And um, he and I had the opportunity to sit down and talk at length. I was really fortunate that the president actually afforded me that opportunity. And um, so basically, I wrote a white paper to start about how we would use the space. And I included situated cognition and the five elements of situated cognition. And as I talked to the architect, he designed spaces around those five elements. Wow, that must have been an incredible back and forth exchange collaboration. It was fun. Uh, what did you learn from him that you didn't expect? Oh, man, I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned uh, the, the detail that goes into the decisions about everything, from the placement of the furniture to the placement of the walls to the, what's on the walls and the shapes. Um, so it was, it was a great creative endeavor. And, and I, I recall in visiting the space that there are many, many different contexts. For instance, uh, the space is designed so it would encourage one-on-one -on -one interaction or group interaction right. or perhaps team interaction. Uh, how much was uh, that type of interaction critical to what you set up as your educational process? Well, you know, interestingly, this space was really a, an answer to many problems that, that we'd been experiencing and I'd felt as an educator over the years. Not having the space to actually give the experience that I wanted. So the situated cognition, the five elements include collaboration, coaching and mentoring, reflection, apprenticeship and multiple practice. So I often didn't have the space, to the, the correct space to really support and encourage this kind of learning. So we were able to put all that into this 25,000 square foot live learning lab. Got you. Yeah. So I'm guessing your uh, classroom doesn't look like two hours of straight lecture. No. 
So this is very much uh, working in situ, kind of in place, and people experiencing it with their own two hands. Right, right. It's pretty exciting. Well, you know, it it occurs to me that that was a launching off point, your work in literacy and then uh, in the development of uh, different ways for you to uh, practice the function of entrepreneurship in your most latest research on competencies. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is groundbreaking research. Could you give us a sense of uh, what do you mean by competencies and what have you found as the key elements of entrepreneurship? So competencies really uh, refer to identifying the, building a structure that allows you to identify the knowledge and the skills and the abilities that uh, an educated or a skilled individual would have, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. So it could be as simple as, uh, you know, in basketball, shooting hoops. You know, we we teach the rules of shooting a free throw, and then we give them practice time. And so mastery of that would be, say, if you can shoot eight out of 10, right? So you've got, you've also got assessment packed into it. And that's why it matters so much today in education. So how does that change our educational model in entrepreneurship? Should we be packaging our learning in a different way? And should we be looking to address certain key competencies before letting our students you know, venture out into the real world so that they are literate, I guess, using your words? Yeah, so you know what's interesting, Ted? I think, I think that educators are doing a really good job. But I think uh, there's ways we can improve. And I think there's also what we're not doing so well is we're not assessing learning. Because in entrepreneurship, uh, often we've assessed it by how many companies are started. Mm -hmm. And I think you and I both would probably agree that we've had many students graduate who didn't start a company, but they demonstrated an entrepreneurial mindset or an entrepreneurial application in another way. So I think it's, it's more about this gives us a way to take what we already know how to do and structure it and define it and assess it to ensure that as students come through, they're getting a customized learning opportunity. I understand. And, you know, going back to your background, uh, you were classically trained in strategy mm-hmm. at a business school. Yes. Uh, did that process teach you to be a teacher? No. <laughs> and, and what did you learn? I, what, I've, what I've ascertained from uh, your work in competence is that you actually engaged the educational and pedagogy researchers. Yes. And, uh, and really did your own immersion into that and then applied it to entrepreneurship. Can you tell us a little bit of what you did and what you learned? What a novel thing on a university campus to talk across disciplines and across colleges. And so, yeah, so what it, one of the things I realized was that I had never taken an education class. I'd been self-taught, like most of my colleagues, and that there was probably some theory in the science of learning and the science of teaching that could be really helpful. So when I had an opportunity to hire somebody onto our team that had a, a background in education, I did so, and it's it's enabled me to kind of learn from him, um, and and uh, sort of uh, jumpstart, if you will, this work. So it it occurs to me that you're seeing your work not as just translating um, these models that are already in education in the field of entrepreneurship, but you're actually trying to engage the next generation of scholars who might be facing the same challenge, of having to apply this in the classroom. Absolutely, it's, I think. Yeah, I think. You know, we have, to, we have to become relevant. I think we're relevant 
but I think we have to ensure that we stay relevant. Let me put it that way. And I think there's so many ways to learn now. I mean, when you need to learn something, where do you go, you know? I mean, I needed to learn how to get a spoon that got stuck in my garbage disposal out. So where do you think I went? I went to YouTube, right? <laughs> so you course. can learn almost anything on YouTube. <laughs> yes, you can. So, so uh, you know, universities have to be able to, sh to demonstrate value and uh, that's the assessment piece. But, but I think we also need to think about how we're teaching in today's uh, world. And that fits so beautifully with competency-based learning because competency-based learning breaks it down into sort of nanobytes, if you will, right. and allows us to um, sort of allow somebody to kind of you know, build their own program or customize for what they need because they come to university, especially now they come with a lot of skills that are gonna be very useful for them in if they wanna be a entrepreneur. Many skills maybe that I don't even have using technology, for example. Well, you know, as a matter of fact, um, I'm curious if you think that the next generation of education will actually result in kind of this reality that entrepreneurship education is usually just in time, meaning it's done while it's um, facing you, when you face the problem, do you think that uh, competencies will allow us to draw entrepreneurship education into the world of practice? Yes. So that when people are facing these problems, they would actually engage with that material? And that's been our problem all along. You know, it's actually a problem in other fields like leadership and strategy sure. as well. We're training somebody to be a CEO, but they're not going to go right out and be a CEO. Absolutely not. So it's, it's really that, you know, we need to think about lifelong learning and we need to train lifelong learners. And then we, you're right, we need to be available. And that's what I think centers can do, is, is be available, especially to our alumni and to the community, the ecosystem uh, at, at large, uh, with more just-in-time learning. That, see, that's a really bold vision for our future. And you know, there's one thing that we spoke about previously that I was really curious if you could help me unpack. Okay. And uh, it's the function of resilience. Yep. You talked a lot about that function in entrepreneurship and the fact that an entrepreneur, when they face uh, challenges and sometimes failure, uh, what separates the wheat from the chaff are the people that do demonstrate resilience. Help me understand how you're thinking about that now. I had a seminal moment in my teaching career about a year and a half ago where I had a graduate student that had just come into our we have a one-year, start-to-finish, uh, lockstep cohort, Master of Science in Entrepreneurship. Wow. And I had a student, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing program, and I had a student come in, and we were having, in the early course in the program, we were having a discussion about failure. And I, I was uh, commenting that failure is a part of success, and that um, if you're going to succeed, you will experience failure. And that you know, we tend to believe that um, early failure is better because it reduces risk. And so, you know, you may not lose your whole home; you just lose a little bit of money, maybe, if you figure out early on that you need to pivot or it's not going to work. And and so, I had a student that was very upset by this experience huh. and uh, very, uh, very, you know, he said, I can't believe you want us to fail. And I said, well, I don't think I want you to fail, nor do I think you'll want to fail.
but it, you will fail if you're going to succeed. And Failure's inevitable. Yeah, I was lucky. I had a mom that was an entrepreneur, and she told me if I never made a mistake, never failed, that I hadn't done anything. So now, do I you was think really failure is the tool to learn? <laughs> is it that is that how entrepreneurs learn? Entrepreneurs learn failure? through failure. So resilience sure. is a big part of it. You know, having an escape route is not always the best solution. Um, you know, resilience is more about can you go the long haul and can you bounce back? Right. And uh, that, you know, I, I worry a little bit because I, I fear that maybe, um, you know, we have, uh, we, we may have a, a generation that is, is not ready for that. And so I think we need to spend some more time on that process. And there are, you know, in the field of psychology, and I'm stepping over into that field now, but there are a lot of tools that have been shown to improve resiliency. You know, in the years that you've spent uh, really developing your and honing your ideas around entrepreneurship, I'm guessing uh, we assume a certain element around uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact that all around an entrepreneur, and you might, you know, the listeners might be surprised that we're talking about failure as a commonplace thing. You know, obviously it's something that people are afraid of in some cases. They avoid, obviously, they mitigate. Um, but uh, failure is a part of the entrepreneurial process because of uncertainty. Is that the way you think about it? Yes, and it's a badge of honor in certain cultures, like Silicon Valley culture. It's a badge of honor to have a failure or two. You know, that's an interesting thing we found when we were doing some ecosystem research in Tampa. We were talking to entrepreneurs that had been in Tampa and there, and they said, you know, the, you know one of the big differences we see is how the community and the investment community in particular in Tampa feels about failure compared to Silicon Valley. You know, it very is- Very different. It's very different. And even seeing it in my own children, knowing that that's how they build self-confidence, that's how they learn. You know, it was very, it's very hard to allow somebody that you care about to experience a failure. But it's the resilience and the bouncing back from that and the holding fast that really builds that character and that richness of life. See, that's so encouraging. I really appreciate you sharing that because, uh, you know, ultimately it's you're, you're bending and not breaking. Yeah. Uh, you have yes. to learn to bend and think about that plan B uh, and, you know, brush yourself off once you hit that wall. And, and have people around you and support you, know, you. Support who support you. Yeah. yeah. So you had mentioned Tampa. Tampa is going through an incredible renaissance. I've been very fortunate to visit recently. And uh, tell us what's going on in Tampa. What is it about Tampa that's turning it into kind of an entrepreneurial hotspot? Well, you know, it's exciting. I've been there nine years. And when I came, all I saw everywhere was opportunity. <laughs> and that was, a, that was fun. But I don't think Tampa recognized it. You know, it was easier to see coming in. Um, it's, there's, it's got all the ingredients of a great place to live. Uh, but it's also been a community that hasn't recognized what it had to offer. Yeah. Kind of an inferiority kind of uh, uh, feeling right. that, that the, the population had there. And, uh, and it's got a body of water separating it. So you've got St. Petersburg, Clearwater, and Tampa. So that body of water can be kind of big at times. Um, so you have three communities? We have three, three cities yeah. that actually make up the three million plus uh, population. Oh, it's a huge place. But it's big, uh, but it's got that water in the middle. Now, Tampa is known as an affluent town. Yes. But what has made, you know, and uh, I wonder sometimes about affluent towns, sometimes they're not hungry. Uh, but as a matter of fact, Tampa is turning into a real entrepreneurial hotspot 
but founders so. are starting to move out. Why is that? What's well, happening? You know, we did some research a few years back. Uh, Kaufman Foundation funded a study, and one of the things we found is that Tampa, surprisingly, is much more affordable place to live than a lot of communities. So we had some young guys that moved down there from Washington, D.C., uh-huh. um, started a company called Hulk, uh, College Hunks Hauling Junk, and they're a big franchise. Oh, now. yeah, right. Yeah, and they came out of D.C., and they said, you know, it's amazing what we can afford to do here. Uh-huh. So, you know, cost of living is a big part of it. Uh, it's much less expensive. Um, it's a great you know, environment to live in. I mean, it's beautiful. You got beaches. It's, you know, it's a nice, nice uh, community. It's, it's, a, it's got a, a d- very diverse population. I think the diversity lends itself to entrepreneurship. I know there's been lots of research around that uh, area. And I think it's, it's come of age more recently because a few people have recognized the value there and have come there and invested there. And you know, one of those folks is um, a finance guy, a head, former hedge fund guy, Jeff Finnick. And what's Jeff doing? So Jeff came there, you know, he decided a few years ago he wanted to buy a, um, uh, a uh, hockey team. Uh-huh. That was hockey. Hockey won, in Tampa. Hockey in Tampa. Yeah, who would put that together? But the Lightning. Know? We've we've been in the Stanley Cup uh, and competed very well. Yeah, all right. Won that. Yeah. So done very well. Similar here, by the way. The Hurricanes here. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, he decided he wanted to buy. He looked at. He wanted to buy a professional sports team. Uh-huh. And he looked around and he decided hockey was what he wanted. And he found the Lightning, and it was a you know he then dug into Tampa. And he saw the same thing that I saw when I went there was opportunity. And he moved there, invest, has invested heavily in the community, um, and he's brought in other investors. Cascade, which is Bill, uh, Bill Gates' investment group, wow, um, came in as a co-investor. And um, he's really revitalizing one part of town that's on the water, a port area. How exciting. It's kind of a grungy area that's really kind of cool. You yeah. Know? And uh, he's invested a lot there. He's, uh, he also has enticed a, a big incubator out of New York uh, to come there, uh, dream it, and do their urban tech. Uh, he's really into urban tech and Internet of Things and smart cities. And uh, so, you know, we've had issues like transportation mm-hmm. problems, mm-hmm. again, because of the water and spread out. But we're finding some really cool solutions, um, technology and and um, using technology to, to really solve some of that. We're seeing other communities like Detroit, like um, uh, Salt Lake City, like uh, Las Vegas, yep. where there are individuals who are stepping up as leaders, but they're bringing other leaders to the table. It yep. occurs to me, Jeff's very fortunate to have you in Tampa uh, as a leader. Um, there are other people that are now engaging with that ecosystem. Do you think leadership plays a significant role in, in creating a momentum in oh, these communities? Absolutely. People need a reason to believe, and sometimes it comes from having an entrepreneur breakout, entrepreneurial venture breakout, uh, and we've had a few of those, but not enough, you know, not not like Bill Gates in Seattle, right? right. You know? It's more like the base um, hit East yeah. Coast version. Yeah, yeah. So non unicorn. Yeah, so uh, people like Jeff Finnick who come in and believe, and are willing to invest money, uh, make a big difference, and. You know, he's also investing in a in a incubator there that's going to be pretty phenomenal. So I, I think, yeah, I think people make a difference always, and leadership is a big part of that. Well, I'm going to conclude by one uh, maybe personal anecdote. I've learned a little bit that you have taken up sailing 
as a major part of your life. You were just on sabbatical, you were out in the seas, and uh, you've started to really make the connection between the skills and resilience around sailing and entrepreneurship. Can you give me a sense of uh, how you're thinking about it? Oh yeah, I mean, I've learned so much from sailing. you know, everything from communication and leadership to, you mentioned resilience. And, you know, resilience is, is as we said, a, a major factor. And, you know, opportunities come along all the time. And sometimes we see them, sometimes we don't. When we do recognize them and the timing's right and we decide that we're going to try to take them, uh, the question is, will we have the, the resilience to keep going? And, and the same thing happens in sailing. I can tell you, a number of times we've been out and all the conditions looked right, the opportunity looked perfect, but you know, the weather can change, <laughs> things can break on a boat, you know, you might, uh, the weather change, you have to put your sails down, we're sailors, and you have to use your engine and then something happens to your engine. You have to be resilient and even a, probably a sailor more than a power boater. Sure. Uh, but you know, the last thing you want to do is the last thing you want to do is call for help, right? Right, right. <laughs> you sometimes know, you have to. Though, sometimes you have to. The ocean's bigger than you. Yeah, sometimes you have to, but at the end of the day, it's about figuring out, you know, how to get to port safely. And sometimes you have an escape route and you think, you know, I don't want to do this, I'm going to take it. And you know, if it's the middle of the night or if the weather doesn't uh, permit, Going to land can be one of the most dangerous things you do, so you have to persevere. And uh, you have to trust in your boat, and you trust in your team, and you trust in your skills, you trust in yourself, and you build self-confidence. So there's a lot there. Well, I wish you smooth sailing and a safe harbor. Uh, Rebecca, we're so thrilled to have you as a Cohane Visiting Professor here at Carolina and at, and at Duke. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today on the Heels of Innovation. Thank you, Ted. It's an honor.